Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate the invitation to come be with you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. If you were watching the scrolling announcements just a minute ago, you noticed that my subject that's been assigned to me is Jesus, the high priest. And I gave some scriptures there, but we're going to actually back up just a little bit, and I'm going to read beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever is entered into God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning of the heart and intention, thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. After having read that, I'm going to start the discussion tonight. And I want to say this before I start. I'm, I based everything I'm doing tonight on the fact an assumption. I assumed before I got here that most of you have seen a movie called The Wizard of Oz. How many people have seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, we're good. If nobody raised their hand, I was in trouble. I want you to imagine the end of that movie. Poor Dorothy. All she wants is to go home. A tornado had lifted her from the land that she lived in and taken her to Oz. And only the wizard, the powerful wizard, can help her. So she travels along the yellow brick road, and while she travels along there, she picks up three friends who are also in need, hoping the wizard will help them. And they finally arrive at his capital. Then timidly and fearfully, you remember that scene where they walk down that long hallway into the throne room? And as they get there, there before them in all of his terribleness with his, is this frowning wizard demanding to know what gives them the right to appear before Oz. He condescends. They tell him that they are there to get something, and he condescends to them. And he says, I'll give you what you ask, but only for a price. Do you remember what they had to do? I'll give you what you ask, but I need the broomstick from the wicked witch. They've got to go earn his favor even if it means risking their own lives. And I remember this scene from when I was little. Do you remember the, the cowardly lion? I always thought he was one of the favorite characters because he was just so cowardly, and the, the guy who played that part played it so well. Do you remember every time that Oz would speak, the, the, the lion would shake or he'd grab his tail nervously or whatever. There's one time where he even jumped through the window. He was so scared standing before the wizard. But the thing about that whole movie is we know the truth, don't we? The wizard is a frog. You look at that wizard, and we know that he is no, nothing more than a mere man with nothing to give. And you say, why are we talking about the Wizard of Oz when you're supposed to be talking about Jesus as the high priest? 
Because I want you to think about that. You, you, you remember that scene of them standing there cowering before the wizard. How are we supposed to feel knowing that one day we will stand before God? That verse that we just read from Hebrews. Wasn't there a verse in there that said that all things, even the intents of the heart, will be known? Everything will be laid bare and, and, and naked there before the one before we, whom we will give account? How do you think we're going to feel when we stand before God? We know that God is not a fraud. He's real. He is the true, holy God. And we truly are unworthy. We stand before a true, almighty God, the holy God, and there is no brain, there is no heart, there is no courage that will cause us to win His favor. Do we dare stand before God, knowing how bad we've failed Him? Knowing that we're human and knowing that we're flawed? Is that a positive thought? If you think, boy, I can't wait to stand before God. Or are we kind of like that crew in that movie? We think about it, and it kind of makes us tremble, and we think, I'm kind of nervous if I know that I'm going to have to do that. Well, what about this? Do we dare? As we stand before the throne of God, do we dare look to Jesus for help? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I've, I've failed Jesus, haven't you? I mean, Jesus said, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And I've done some of his commands, but I've also failed in so many of those commands. Haven't you? We're humans and we're sinners and we make mistakes continually sometimes. Considering our track record, will he look at me and say, yeah, you're my friend? When you look at the book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews, the context of the entire book is that the believers were drifting away from the faith. They were, you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, you go to chapter 3, verse 19, and the, as they were drifting away from the faith, what it, what it was doing is it was leading to temptation and disobedience. They were giving in, and he was telling them, don't do that. And so that's why he writes in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We're going to back up from Hebrews 4 and look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. The message declared by angels is proven to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience. If it received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a... You see what he's saying? The author of the Hebrew letter is saying, don't drift. Well, I know that you're struggling with this. I know that you're fighting this. Don't be disobedient. At the end of chapter 3, if you go into chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, he says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and whom, when he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And what he does is he uses the Israelites as kind of an example of disobedience. He's writing to these people, telling them, Don't be disobedient. Don't drift away. And he talks about the Israelites and says, you know what they did? They drifted. They became disobedient. There's that connection again between unbelief and disobedience. One leads to the other. Why were they wavering? Because of their lack of confidence. Sometimes I think we, and this is a bold statement, I made this statement a couple of weeks ago in Aniana, and I saw people kind of give me the whole wrinkled brow, we're not sure we agree with you, preacher, look. I think sometimes 
we as Christians, even those of us who have been Christians for quite some time, I think sometimes we may begin to even doubt Christ. You say, what do you mean by that? Um, I don't necessarily think that we doubt that the work he did was sufficient, that the sacrifice he gave was sufficient. I think we start to doubt whether or not he will be our high priest or whether he begrudges us because of our sin. We know our humanity. We know our flaws. We know our brokenness. So we think about standing before God, and the picture is painted, isn't it? There's Christ. He is our intercessor. He is our high priest. He is the mediator. He's the go-between. And yet what we do sometimes is we doubt whether or not he will do that. They don't have, we don't have the confidence that maybe we should have. And what happens is the Hebrew writer is he solemnly warns them, take heed, don't be like the disobedient, unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 that we just read. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living. Well, you, you know that passage. It's very, and, and is sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it gets down to that part that kind of makes everybody tremble a little bit when it gets down to that part where it says all things are, are open to his sight. Nothing is hidden from him. The eyes of him to whom we must give account. Sobering words. They make me squirm a little bit. Every, I think about those words too. Every thought. Not just our actions. You know, some of us can sit there and say, well, I haven't done anything bad today. Have you thought anything bad today? Well, I didn't say anything bad today, but did you think anything bad today? I intended to do something bad, but... Uh, Fought off the temptation, but did you? That's pretty scary to me when I think about that. Here, I'm going to stand before God, and it's not just going to be standing there with my actions laid bare, but every intent of the heart, every thought laid bare before the one before whom I must give account. So, what does the Hebrew author want us to do? Knowing that this is, this is our case, we're going to stand in the throne room of God one day. What must we know and what must we do? Look at what he says in verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Think about that. Hold fast our confession. What does that mean? Uh, this is basically, I think, the thrust of this entire epistle. It is written to say, hold fast. Your, don't waver from the faith. Don't drift away. Stay faithful. Since we have a high priest, stay faithful. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to that confession. Grip it tight. Don't let it go. It's an interesting and surprising thought process if you really think about it. He's been warning of the dire consequences of unbelief and disobedience. And we would think, especially after the comment that we will stand before the judge to whom we must give account, the, one, the judge who sees everything, just think about it. In our, our human way of thinking, what do you think should be the next statement? Since then, we have a high priest. 
Let us strive to be better. Let us strive to earn His favor. You know, the word strive is used, and it goes in there, and it talks about the Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's an interesting passage. You know, that's the only place in Scripture that word Sabbath is used. We, I say Sabbath, and what do you automatically think? Old Testament Sabbath, day of rest, the seventh day. This is the only place that it's used in all of Scripture. And it means there is a rest for the people of God. It doesn't make reference to the Sabbath day or even uh, what the denominational world calls the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week. It's making reference to the rest that's laid up for Christians. For the people of God, there will be a rest. The rest from our labors, I think, is mentioned in Revelation, the 14th chapter. And what we do sometimes... The dangerous sin that we fall into sometimes as believers is not resting in the work of our Savior. I've been a Church of Christ preacher for what I consider to be a long time. Now some of y'all are sitting there saying, he hasn't been preaching as long as, as he thinks he's been preaching. I'm way older than him. Uh, my dad was a Church of Christ preacher. My grandfather was a Church of Christ preacher. I'm third generation preacher. I've been around preaching my entire life. I've heard a lot of, of preaching, and I've been around a lot of Christians. I've been around a boatload of, of members of the church. And let me tell you something. I think that many members of even the Lord's church fall into this trap. A very dangerous trap of not trusting in the work of our Savior. Not trusting in what Jesus did. Failing to believe that Jesus did the necessary work to save from sin is a dangerous trap, so the author spends most of his epistle. If you say, that's not a trap that any Christian would fall into, go read the book of Hebrews tonight when you get home. You, you could probably sit down and read most of it tonight when you get home. If you think I'm wrong, you sit down tonight and you read the book of Hebrews. What does the Hebrew author spend the rest of his time proving and stating and restating and reproving. He spends the majority of what the Hebrew letters proving that Jesus Christ is the high priest, that his work was sufficient, and we can put our faith and our trust in him. That's what the Hebrew letter is. Yes, don't waver from your faith. Hold fast your confession. Why? Because the work that the Savior did is sufficient. And if you will remain faithful, what the Savior did will benefit you. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, He passed through the heavens. The sacrifice He offered on the cross was accepted, and He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven, and indeed He has entered truly into the Holy of Holies, heaven. Why did He enter there? Make the connection. And I, I, when I first started putting this lesson together, when I talked to Chuck, uh, my entire lesson was a comparison between the Old Testament high priest and Christ. I was going to do one of those, this is what the Old Testament priests, high priest did, this is what Christ did. And then I got thinking about it, and, and the lesson changed. I got to putting the lesson together, and instead of doing an Old Testament comparison to a New Testament, I was sitting there going, the whole Hebrew letter is proving the fact that the Old Testament priests... We're not good enough, but Jesus Christ, what? Is. What Jesus did is sufficient. He has entered into the Holy of Holies with His blood offering. He has made full propitiation for His people. 
The covenant nation of Israel had a high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for their sins. But first, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. And then, every year, guess what? He had to make sacrifice for the people again. But not Jesus. Our high priest is, as the Bible describes it, a great high priest. The priest who needed no offering for himself. Jesus didn't have to make an offering for himself before he could make an offering for us. Why? Because he was sinless. And the work that he did, the salvation that he completed, we need to believe it. We need to rest in it. We need to look to no one else. We need to look to nothing else. And by all means, whatever you do, do not look to your own righteousness thinking that you'll stand justified before God. Because there is nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. But one might still object. I know that I can't earn favor with God by my works. I know that my only hope is in Jesus Christ. But here's where I think Christians fail. Remember I said I've seen a lot of Christians who, who stagger and waver. This is where I think we go wrong. Is they say, I know that I'm not good enough. I know it's not based on my righteousness. I know that I can't make sacrifice for my own sin. I'm, I'm absolutely, completely dependent on what Jesus did. Every one of y'all right now sitting there saying, that's what you just described a minute ago, preacher, that's not me. I know that it's all dependent on Jesus. But I think what a lot of us in the church have done is we've started to doubt not the work of Jesus, but maybe we doubt whether Jesus has given up on us. Have you ever done that? Think about it. And then I, some people would say, in Anyana, I just quit preaching and started meddling. I'm not trying to meddle in your life, but I'm just asking a sincere question. Have you ever done that? You say, I know what Jesus did is right and perfect, and he was perfect, but there's no way he would stand up for me. You know how many people come into my office seeking counsel and that's the story I hear? My sin is too great. I'm too far gone. There's no way. I know he died on the cross for me and what did I do to show, to get, to show for it? I sin and then people say this to me. I sin and not only do I sin, and I'm going to raise my hand on this too, I sin the same sins over and over. Anybody else ever do that? You sin and then you sin the same sins over and over and then, and then you quit praying because you think, I know Jesus has to get to God, has to be tired of me praying, asking forgiveness for the same sin that I asked forgiveness for two weeks ago or last week or yesterday. I sin the same sins over and over. I disappoint myself with the sins I commit. Surely Jesus has to be disappointed when he looks down and he says, oh wait, here comes that one walking up the, the plank to the throne room of God to ask for the same forgiveness again, for the same crime again. But did you catch verse 15? This is what he says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The great high priest who is at God's right hand in his throne room, that high priest, that, that comforts me, 
And I tell people this. When people come to me and they say, my sin is so great and I'm not sure I can get forgiveness. I'm not sure that Jesus can help me. I, I try to tell people, Jesus Christ is our Savior. He can help us. And people say, I don't know if Jesus can help me. What does that, what does that verse say about Jesus? It calls him our high priest, but what does it tell us about him? He what? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. He has been in the same circumstance that we are. He understands. And some people, I've, I've actually had people say, do you really think Jesus understood and understands what we understand in the modern world in which we live? Do you obviously believe that Jesus understands? Let me tell you what. You really think he's experienced what we have? I know he's been tempted. And people ask the question, did that temptation really impact him? When Jesus was tempted, he was God. But yes, he was also human. And did that temptation really impact him? You look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What does it say about Jesus? When Jesus was tempted, what does the Bible say happened to him when he was tempted? He suffered. You ever suffered with a temptation? You ever had temptation just hit you and hit you and hit you? And it, I've always heard that a opportunity always knocks once, but temptation, what, it pounds on the door? You ever had temptation just pound on the door and there it is and you're suffering and maybe you're even asking God, please help me, show me the door, give me the way of escape from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Just get me out of this. You think Jesus doesn't understand? The Bible tells there he suffered when he was tempted. Suffered when tempted. He was hungry when Satan tempted him to make bread. He was a nobody when, when the devil tempted him to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple. He had the cross still in front of him when tempted to bypass the cross and worship Satan. We suffer from temptations because the temptation proposes to meet a need that we feel. You ever thought about that? Why, why do we feel so strongly tempted? There's something that we are feeling, and when we're tempted, it is tempting us to meet that need. And we suffer when we don't give in to it. When we're fighting it, it's difficult. But Christ's sufferings went further. We give in to temptation because the temptation itself burdens us too heavily. We give in simply to get rid of the burden of temptation. Christ never gave in. He fought against every temptation every day, never giving in, never giving up, never removing temptation. Do you understand that? That when we give in to temptation, there's a part of us that goes, well, the temptation's not there anymore because I gave in to it. Jesus bore that suffering every day of his life. So when somebody comes to me and says, I'm just not sure Jesus can understand me. For his entire life, he understood you. He bore the temptation his entire existence and never gave in. That's impressive, isn't it? We should be impressed with our high priest. And he bore the sufferings that came precisely because he didn't give in to temptation. 
we give in to temptation to satisfy our cravings and we might feel guilty about eating or drinking or whatever we indulge in, but at least we're satisfied our thirst or our hunger or our other craving. He remained thirsty and hungry and unsatisfied. He suffered from the lack of what temptation would have fulfilled. And some people, this is what people always say to me, today, but he was God. He could handle it. But he was also man. That's what the Bible, he, he became like us so that he could be tempted like us, so that he could understand us, so that whenever we stand before an almighty, righteous God saying, I gave in to temptation. And a righteous God looks down and our high priest says, I understand why. I've been there, done that. The high priest understands our sufferings. He learned to avail himself of the only resources. You look at chapter 5, verse 7, says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. What did Jesus do when he was suffering temptation? He prayed. He asked God to help. Don't we do the same thing? I think we do. I think we cry out to God. We say, I mean, we say it, and it may just be a really brief prayer. Temptation comes along, and we may stop and pause and say, Lord, help me. That's what Jesus did. And it says that he, as he was suffering, he prayed to God, and he was heard. Why? Some people say, well, he was heard because he had that special connection with God. That's not what this tells us, is it? You think he was heard because he had a special connection with God because he was God's son? He was heard because of his reverence. That's what the passage tells us. His reverence for God. He was heard because however great the temptation may be, his desire and determination to please his heavenly Father was greater. Although he was a son, the Bible tells us, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. How could the Son of God learn obedience? Have you ever, you ever read that and wondered that? How could the Son of God learn obedience? Had he ever been disobedient? No. So how could he learn obedience? He was never disobedient, but before he took on flesh, he dwelled in glory. He did not undergo the continual assault of temptation that we do. By leaving his home in glory and taking on our flesh, he learned through experience what it is like in human flesh to obey the Father. But let's go back. I want to go back to chapter 4, verse 15, just for a second. The main point of it, because Jesus suffered in the flesh, he is qualified to be our high priest precisely because he could then be sympathetic to us. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Did you, did you catch that? We have a high priest who understands. We have a high priest who's not going to say, I don't care. Jesus does care. Chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 2, says the high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he understands their weaknesses. Now, let me tell you, I said a minute ago that there's some verses that give me Scripture. That Scripture gives me more comfort than just about any other Scripture in all of the Bible. When I think about Jesus and the work that he did, and I think about the fact that he understands and he's sympathetic to my plea, my plight, and I read that verse and says, and because he's a high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. 
That's me. I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, that's me. I'm not an overly complicated man. I'm a rather simple man. Uh, when I read in the book of Acts about uh, when Peter and John went up into the temple, you remember it says that they, when they perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, they took notice of them because they had been with Jesus. I, I feel sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm like that. I'm that ignorant, unlearned guy. But I, I know about Jesus, and I believe I've got a pretty good grasp on understanding the fact that he is about high priest. He is a sympathetic, effectual high priest. He was beset by temptation, yet without sin. He learned obedience so much that he was made perfect and became the author of eternal salvation. And then verse 16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. You listen to what the Hebrew author says. He makes it very clear that we are sinners whose guilt is laid bare before our divine judge. Any effort to redeem ourselves, to make amends, to offer reparation is worthless. And yet he bids us draw close to God with confidence. Seems like the two things just don't gel, does it? You, you can't do anything to, to make amends. You're going to stand before an all-knowing God who will see everything bare and open. Now approach that throne with confidence. The only reason I can approach that throne with confidence is because Jesus Christ is my high priest. Jesus Christ gives me that confidence. But we are bid to draw near with confidence. Knowing the throne before which we appear is a throne of grace. Throne of grace, reference to the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. You, you, you remember back in the Holy of Holies, they had what they called the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, which was set over the Ark of the Covenant, two cherubims with their wings coming together. This mercy seat was literally the throne of God. It was the place where the blood was put. The priests would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of God's people. And the author of Hebrews is saying that our great high priest has already entered in and put his blood on the mercy seat. He's already taken care of the work that needs to be taken care of, and his blood was sufficient. Our great high priest made propitiation for our sins completely. He paid full price, and he did it gladly. So come near that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. I think too many times we feel as though we truly are sinners in the hands of an angry God rather than children in the hands of a loving father. And so many times we talk about the father and we forget about the priest. You see, I, I will stand before God and you will stand before God one day, but I will not stand there alone. I will stand there with Jesus Christ, my high priest. Now, are you going to heaven? That's a question you ask a lot of church people and you see people's eyes go, what did he just say? Did he just said, we're going to hell. I hope so. Well, we might make it. Roll the dice. Flip a coin, right? I hope. Let me tell you something. As Christians, that need never be our attitude. I, I, my, my eternal destiny is not going to be on a coin flip or a roll the dice or a pull of the straws. I'll tell you right now, I'm going to heaven. Now, am I standing here tonight telling you that I'm a, I'm a righteous, holy person? I'll tell you right now, I'm not. Uh, it, I've been in Aniana for 17 years, and for the first six years I was there, it freaked everybody out when I stood up and told them I'm a sinner. They're like, what's the preacher trying to say? I'm trying to say I'm human. I know that everybody wants to put the preacher on a pedestal, 
Uh, but I'll go ahead and tell you right now. And Chuck did not pay me to say, don't put your preacher on a pestle. He's human like you. You know what? He makes mistakes. You know who else makes mistakes and sins? Your elders. Well, you know why? Because they're human. You know who else does? Your deacons. You know who else does? The ladies teaching Bible class. You know why? Because they're human. And as humans, we are going to make mistakes. And, and it's almost as though we're afraid to say that sometimes. And just, just If I were to say right now, who's the sinner? Everybody think, is he asking us to be happy about it? Or yesterday I did. You know, no, I'm not asking me, But to be honest about it, the, the Bible itself says that if we say we have no sin, we're what? We're liars. Well, I don't want to be a liar. And I know that I'm going to stand before God one day. And I'm going to give account. So what are the practical lessons? I was sitting there, and this, this is where I always try to talk a little bit and then try to kind of wrap things up with some practical lessons. So what are the practical lessons? Knowing that Jesus is our high priest, knowing the throne of grace truly does provide the grace that we need to help in our time of need, knowing our King will give us the resources we need to face our trials, to heave up under the suffering, to wage the ongoing battle that we continually fight against the devil, knowing that what are the practical lessons we need I was assigned this subject tonight, but I turn to this passage again and again when people come to me for counsel. Suffering and giving in to sin takes its toll on all of us. The problem in the church sometimes is we suffer and we battle and we wage that, that battle privately. Book of James tells us to confess our faults one to another. But we don't do that really, do we? We don't cry out for help and lean on each other. And I may be wrong. Chuck, I may be, if I am, I'm very sorry. I doubt very seriously that every Sunday you have 10 or 12 responses. I know, how, how big is your crowd on St. 3 something, 300 something? Now that 300 something people, you think there's at least five sinners? probably need to ask for prayers of the church five that's that's like one percent right but yet we go week after week we'll come into worship and we'll meet with our family the people who love us our brothers our sisters and we never let anybody know what we're struggling with we fight it alone And then our faith starts to waver, and the suffering leads us to wonder if God cares. And then sin leads us to wonder how God could care. How many more times can we confess the same sin before God says, that's enough? Maybe that's why we suffer. You ever thought that? That's why I'm suffering right now, because God's displeased with me. You ever had that thought? I'm suffering right now because I know God's not happy with me. I'm doing the same thing. I'm making the same mistakes over and over, or even if it's different mistakes, but I'm still making mistake after mistake after mistake. God looks down and he's displeased with me, so I'm suffering. And you'll say, but that's okay, I've got Jesus. But in reality, we go, well, how pleased can Jesus be with me, though? I mean, just think of it. He died on a cross for me. And what have I done to show for it? I fail him over and over and over. How could a true follower of Christ be such a sinner? Maybe he tried his best to save, but my heart is just too hard. 
Maybe he did go to the cross with joy because he knew what would come. But now that he sees how little progress that I've made in all my years of being a Christian, how could he in any way rejoice over me? I'm telling you, this is one of those sermons that as I preach this, I'm telling you, this is one of those sermons that these are my thoughts. That paragraph I just read, those have been my thoughts sometimes over the years. I've thought to myself, is there any way that God or Christ could be pleased with me? Knowing how, how human I am, knowing how broken I am, Satan accuses me of my failures. That's what the Bible calls me, the accuser. And the sad truth of it is sometimes he's right. He accuses me, and I can't stand up and say, you liar. Um, but when Satan claims that my high priest can neither take care of my sin or wants to take care of my sin when he claims that my Savior failed on the cross in regard to me or that he no longer desires to intercede for me, right then I know that Satan is what the Bible calls him, a liar and the father of lies. For me and for us, to fear that we will not receive mercy before God, and I've tried to get, this is a point that I've been trying to pound home in Anyana probably for about six months to the point now where I think the whole church is ready to say, okay, move on to the next subject. But it's something that I, at 46 years of age, preaching for over half of my life, when the light went off with me a few years back, realizing when, uh, the more people, I, I'm going to tell you right now, the average preacher quits by age 47. Did you know that? Chuck, you're right there, ain't you? He's behind me, I think, a little bit even. We're getting there, right? I was sitting there a while back, and I was like, man, I'm bumping on that 47 quitting age. And uh, there's times in my career where I go, I get it. I fully understand because you just want to preach and you want to... If all preaching was, was doing Bible studies and baptisms, man, we would have it made. But the truth of it is, being a preacher, not only are you preaching, not only are you teaching classes, you're working with people, you're evangelizing, but you're also counseling Christians who are sinners, who are struggling. And every preacher I know wants to help. They want to do their best. And I was sitting there one day in my office, and I'd been counseling some people, and uh, got up from the counseling session and said, I'm going to see my counselor for my counseling session because I needed it after sitting through a couple of counseling sessions. When we think that I cannot approach God's throne and receive grace, it is not to express doubt in ourselves. What we are doing is we are expressing doubt in Jesus Christ. Did you catch what I just said? Somebody said, that's a bold statement. It sure is. For me to say, I, I can't get grace. That's not about me. 
That's about Jesus. Say, so what do you mean by that? When I realized that, I learned to back off and however humble it may be to say, I hope to be saved. I hope that God still approves of me. That is actually a statement of utmost arrogance. Am I prepared to say, you did your best, Jesus, but it just wasn't good enough. I'm too tough of a case for you. I know you went to the cross for me, but my sins were too great for you. My hardened heart was too much for you to overcome. Let me tell you something. I don't have the nerve to go there, do you? I don't have the guts to say that, do you? And so if you're sitting there tonight and you're saying, Preacher, you don't know my circumstance. I don't have to know your circumstance. You don't know my sin. I don't have to know your sin. You don't know the repetitive nature of what I do. I don't have to know the repetitive nature of what you've done. You don't know me. I don't have to know you. You know why? Because I know your high priest. His name is Jesus. He understands. And he urges you to come to the throne of grace. Boldly, confidently, that you may receive mercy and help right now in your time of need. I tried real hard to come up with a clever invitation. I'm telling you, I sat in my office for like an hour going, where could I go from here? When it dawned on me that there is no need for a clever wording. There is no more powerful message than the words I just said. Your high priest urges you, come to the throne of grace and mercy. And you know what you'll receive? Grace and mercy. If you're here tonight and need to respond, I believe an invitation song has been announced. Or we already did that. Didn't so I'm going to close out with a prayer. I got confused. I thought I was still an Aniana. We always offer the invitation at the end. But I'll tell you right now, if you need to make things right between you and your Heavenly Father, if you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters, I know the good people here. See the preacher, see the elders. Ask them to pray for you. Go home like Jesus said. Get in your closet, your small private room. Pray tonight. Your high priest will be there with you. Will you bow with me now as we close out with a prayer? Dear Lord, as we close out this study of Jesus as our high priest, we come to you in his name, by his authority. It's through him that we can approach you today. And with confidence, Lord, we're thankful for the grace and mercy you extend to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your grace. Lord, we are undeserving. We're humans and we're so flawed. But thank you for giving us your grace anyway. Thank you not for giving us what we deserve, but giving us something better. Making us more than conquerors through your son. Lord, help us to be like Paul. Help us to have that confidence that at the end of our life, if it comes anytime soon, we can say as he did, I'm at the end of my, my race. I know there's a crown of life laid up for me. Lord, there's a crown of life laid up for every person in this room if they'll reach out and grasp it. Help us never, ever, though we doubt ourselves, to never, ever doubt the work and the mission of our high priest, Jesus Christ, knowing that he can give us what we need in a time of need, and what we need is to be able to approach you. 
approaching you through prayer like this or approaching you through prayer privately, Lord, help us to always have trust and confidence in the work and the person of your Son. And it's through him we pray. Amen.